Okay, um, we're talking today with Daniel Ramey. Daniel is a Senior Research Associate at Resources for the Future, where he focuses on energy and climate issues. He teaches energy policy at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, where he's also affiliated with the uh, Michigan Energy Institute. Daniel, uh, welcome. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. We want to talk today about your book, um, the fracking debate, and I want to, if you'll indulge me for a minute, put put a little context around this and and explain uh, why I think this is a good conversation to have in connection with the transition to a greener energy mix and the trade-offs associated with that. Um, as you know, and as probably a lot of the listeners know, there's a division out there among people who favor a relatively rapid transition to a greener energy mix. Uh, between those who see a future role for fossil fuels and those who don't. And there's also a similar split over nuclear power, I think. And I think sort of talking about the risks associated with fracking can help illuminate uh, that debate. And I also wanted to talk to you personally as someone who used to write a lot about fracking regulation, say, five years ago or so, and saw this uh, debate or these perceptions of risk uh, polarize in real time to the point where now we have sort of sub large subsets of the population who think it's plainly evident that fracking is too dangerous to be done anywhere, anytime, and another subset that sees, you know, little or no or negligible risks associated with fracking whatsoever. And so I think I was really delighted that your book came out last year addressing these issues to kind of step into that breach so why don't we start by um, having you talk a little bit about how the book steps into that breach. Yeah, thanks uh, for that introduction. And I think you characterize a lot of the issues around this um, topic really nicely. Uh, the object of the book was to provide an evidence-based resource for people who were trying to wrestle with the answers to these uh, difficult questions about the risks as well as the benefits of uh, shale development, uh, all the new oil and gas development in the United States. Of course, hydraulic fracturing or fracking is you know, just one part of the process required to uh, produce oil and natural gas from shale and other tight rock resources. And in the U.S. over the last 10 years, as many of your listeners know, there's just been this amazing renaissance in production in the United States of both oil and natural gas. And so with all this new production happening around the United States, there are, as you say, many people who are very concerned about the impacts and some people who kind of write the impacts off as, as negligible or, or even non-existent. And uh, the, the purpose of this book is to try to get a sense of the scale of those impacts. What do we actually know about the risks to water resources? What do we actually know about the risks to human health? What do we actually know about the economic impacts that uh, this activity provides in places like West Texas or North Dakota or in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so in a way, it's sort of a book-length uh, analytical survey of a really diverse set of literatures that address all of these risks questions. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, lest, uh, uh, re lest the audience uh, shies away from that type of approach, you know, one uh, bit of sugar that I put in the medicine to help it go down was a lot of stories from oil and gas producing regions. So it's a very, it's a very digestible treatment. And, and, I, and it starts with the chapter names. You know, the chapters are, many of them are phrased, or maybe all of them are phrased as quite, sort of very straightforward questions. Will yeah. fracking make me sick? Does fracking contaminate water? That sort of thing. And so 
Um, it's well organized and well presented. And I want to talk about three, uh, three, put, talk about what you found in three parts. And the first part, I want to, I want to talk about the two chapters I just mentioned. Does fracking contaminate water? Will fracking make me sick? These are the issues that were at the heart of uh, Gasland, the documentary that was quite influential in shaping perceptions of fracking. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a, a sort of, you know, thumbnail sketch of what your major conclusions were in answer to those questions? Sure. So to, we'll start with the water one. Of course, these two things could be related, right? If water is contaminated, someone could get sick from that that water. So so I, I recognize these two things are not separate. I'll try to weave them together a little bit if I can. So focusing first on the water side of things, there is a uh, perception among some, and this is largely stoked by the Gasland film as well as some other advocacy literature that's out there, that the primary risk to drinking water from shale development or fracking in particular is the idea that chemicals used in the fracking process are going to get into people's water and contaminate it. There is very little evidence that that has actually happened at any type of scale in the United States. There are a few isolated instances where it seems likely that Chemicals used in the fracking process got into people's water supplies primarily through leaks or spills at the surface. Um, But the idea that fracking chemicals are coming up from deep underground to get into people's drinking water sources, there's really very, very little evidence of that happening. So um, sometimes people who support the industry will stop right there and as if that is the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story. There are other risks for drinking water associated with shale development, and one of the primary ones is something called methane migration, which is also known as stray gas. So methane, as most of your listeners will know, is the primary component of natural gas. When we burn natural gas out of our stoves, we are burning methane, and methane has the potential to escape out of an oil and gas well if that well is improperly constructed. There are a variety of ways that this problem can happen in a technical sense, and I won't go into it, but it is not uh, unknown or unheard of at all in the industry for improper well construction to lead to this methane migration. Now, if enough methane accumulates in someone's water, that water can become flammable, hence the idea of the flaming faucet that people may have seen, again, in the Gasland film. And uh, this issue of methane migration, there is good evidence of it happening hundreds of times in Pennsylvania alone. So it is not an isolated problem. It's not a very unlikely problem. It's also something that's usually fixable uh, when it does happen. So it's not uh, something that sort of permanently mars uh, a person's water supply, uh, it can be addressed. But it is a real problem and has caused serious serious issues in a variety of parts of the United States. So that's the really short version of the water chapter. When we get to the will fracking make me sick question, the research on the impacts of oil and gas development on human health are are pretty limited at this point. Uh, There are a variety of studies out there But a lot of them actually find sort of inconsistent and sometimes even conflicting findings. So you'll have two or three studies that look at the same set of issues, and they'll come to different conclusions about what the risks actually might be of oil and gas development. There are a couple studies that have come out in the last couple of years, one led by Janet Curry at Princeton in particular, that's pretty persuasive, showing that there can be a risk to 
uh, in utero babies living close to new oil and gas development. Those babies might be at risk of having lower birth weights, which is a, a indicator of a variety of other negative health outcomes. So there is emerging evidence out there, but unfortunately, what we know about the risks to human health from oil and gas development are still pretty limited. My general sense on this topic is that the main things that might cause these uh, health problems would be air emissions coming from oil and gas production facilities. So at an oil and gas well site during drilling and during hydraulic fracturing, you have a lot of diesel burning uh, equipment on site, either for generating electricity or trucks going by or for other processes at the site. And diesel emissions can be harmful in a variety of ways to human health. There are also emissions of uh, toxic uh, air toxics that can occur during what's called the flowback stage of oil and gas development. And if you live close enough and the wind is blowing in the right direction, you could be exposed to those fumes, uh, which could have negative acute uh, uh, short-term health impacts. But it's uh, but but the sort of hypothesized pathway in the uh, I imagine for studies like the Curry study are these sort of conventional pollutants, volatile organics, and others that come from these well pad um, well pad operations. You know, it's not really specified in that in that particular study or most other studies. Um, there, as you say, there are some hypotheses out there, but none of them have, have been tested with much rigor. I know there is a substantial effort underway right now, led by an organization called the Health Effects Institute, to try and get a better sense of what people's exposures are to these air emissions coming off of well sites. So we know there are potentially hazardous. Uh, emissions coming off of these well sites, we don't have good data on how people are actually being exposed to them at this point, and that's the gap that, that I hope will be filled in the next year or two. Okay. Let's turn to another chapter that uh, involves, I think, um, or at least addresses a subject on which some work has been done here at the University of Texas, and that, that's the chapter entitled, Does Fracking Cause Earthquakes? Uh, what did you find there? So... Um, most of the concern about large-scale earthquakes associated with oil and gas development are not associated with the fracking process itself. So hydraulic fracturing, where there's a large volume of water mixed with sand and chemicals pumped deep into the ground, uh, that is the, not the main cause of the earthquakes that we've seen in Oklahoma, for example. Over the last five or six years, uh, there have been literally thousands of earthquakes above a magnitude 3.0, some of them above magnitude 5.0, which can actually cause quite a bit of damage at the surface, happening in northern and central Oklahoma. Those earthquakes are not the result of fracking itself, but instead they're the result of uh, the disposal of wastewater associated with oil and gas development. So all oil and gas wells, whether they are fracked or not, produce water along with the oil and gas that comes up. And that water has to be managed somehow. In some parts of the United States, companies are reusing that water to, uh, to hydraulically fracture other wells. But for the most part, in Oklahoma, uh, most of that water is injected deep underground, uh, basically in a way that it's, um, it's, it's, it's isolated and it won't negatively affect 
other water resources that are nearby. Now, if you inject too much water into the wrong place at too rapid a volume, we have learned in the last few years that you can cause earthquakes. And the reason this is happening in Oklahoma more than other places is that the zones where companies have been disposing of this wastewater uh, is is uh, a zone called the Arbuckle Formation, which sits right on top of what's called the basement rock. And I'm no geologist, so I'm not going to be able to tell you why it's called the basement rock or give you any technical details. But essentially, if there is too much water uh, in this adjacent formation, the Arbuckle Formation, that some of that water can migrate down into the basement rock where it can manipulate or adjust the existing pressures uh, that exist within existing fault lines. So this water is not creating new fault lines, but it's it's affecting the uh, existing pressures and in some cases causing those faults to slip, which is leading to these hundreds of earthquakes and thousands of earthquakes that we've seen in Oklahoma over the last several years. There have been some recent papers documenting cases where fracking itself is causing earthquakes, and we have seen that, uh, but in general they have been of smaller magnitude and have been less concerning than some of these wastewater-related earthquakes. Let's turn to a third issue that I think is probably most directly related to the green transition, and that's the chapter entitled, Is Fracking Good or Bad for Climate Change? This is an issue on which uh, even in the scientific community we've seen particularly sharp conflict. Uh, what what did you find when you looked into that? Yeah, it, this has been a really challenging topic for people to, to get a hold of because there's a lot of different moving parts, and the dynamics are changing all the time. Technology is changing. The energy mix is changing. The cost of renewables are changing. And so uh, so this is a really complex story. Um, so the first thing to say about the effects of fracking on climate change is that over the last 10 years or so, uh, fracking has enabled the production of enormous quantities of low-cost natural gas. That natural gas has displaced a lot of coal in the power sector, and it's largely responsible. It's not the only factor, but it's probably the biggest single factor that has contributed to declining carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S. electricity sector and the U.S. as a whole. So U.S. Uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the power sector are down, I think, below or near their 1990s level. Levels, uh, and that is largely, though not entirely, due to natural gas displacing coal. So that's kind of a good story of, uh, of the impacts of shale development on climate change. But there's a, a few uh, negative sides as well. One of those negative sides is methane emissions. So as I mentioned earlier, methane essentially is natural gas. And methane, if it escapes into the atmosphere, is a very powerful greenhouse gas, many times more powerful than carbon dioxide. And so if that methane is leaking out of wells or pipelines or other infrastructure and it's not getting burned at your burner tip or in a power plant, then it has a, a very bad impact on climate change. The scientific community has been trying to understand how big these emissions are. And again, there's been a lot of uh, debate about this and, and dozens and dozens of papers published. At this point, it seems quite clear to me that natural, that methane emissions from oil and gas systems are not big enough to negate the climate impacts of displacing coal. So natural gas versus coal, natural gas is still a winner. 
That said, there is a lot of room to continue reducing methane emissions from the oil and gas system to improve natural gas and oil's overall emissions footprint. Another important part of this story is the effect of low energy prices on overall demand. So natural gas prices have been low. That displaces coal, but it also hurts nuclear energy. It also hurts wind and solar. When companies are trying to decide, am I going to build a natural gas plant or am I going to build a wind farm? Or am I going to relicense this nuclear plant? If natural gas prices are cheap, it makes it more likely that they will invest in natural gas rather than these other technologies. So that has a negative climate impact because natural gas, of course, has higher emissions than any of those renewable or nuclear sources. The final thing to say is that when people talk about fracking and they talk about shale, they often think just about natural gas. But now more than ever, the shale story is a story about oil rather than natural gas. Most rigs that are out there drilling, most fracking crews that are out there fracking, they are targeting oil primarily. And the U.S. production of oil has grown so enormously in the last several years. The U.S. is now the world's largest producer of oil uh, and is projected to grow substantially in the years to come. That means global oil prices are lower than they otherwise would have been. And when global oil prices are lower, everybody uses more oil. And when everybody uses more oil, emissions go up. And so if you sort of uh, synthesize all of these different effects, the effects of natural gas displacing coal, methane emissions, natural gas displacing renewables and nuclear, as well as the effect of oil, it, it appears uh, that shale development overall is a net negative for climate change, that it has reduced emissions in the U.S. in the past, but going forward with all this new oil production, it seems more likely that it's going to increase global emissions rather than decrease them. Yeah, and I know you're assiduous about sort of not giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down to uh, overall to fracking, but but um, <laughs> one of the one of the pictures that emerges from this book is that these sort of oversimplified polar positions are are missing a lot of the story, and uh, and when you think about where we are now um, in the Permian in the Permian in West Texas, you know it's fair to say that fracking is pretty lightly regulated. Uh, and we have a conversation with Melinda Taylor, who's working on uh, trying to develop sort of local regulatory codes for energy, intense energy development in West Texas, not just oil and gas, but also solar. And we also have a conversation with James Coleman, who's worried about network infrastructure in the Northeast and the inability of pipelines for natural gas to get into New England through New York because in New York, the just the sort of political association with gas based on fracking is so negative uh, that that they sort of they, they oppose any natural gas infrastructure up there. So it, it seems as though the, the the popular debate could really benefit from the from uh, the kind of uh, nuance that's found in this book. That's a long way of saying I think it's a really useful contribution to. <laughs> one one criticism that I've gotten of the book um, as I've as I've taken it around and given talks is um, is that it, maybe it's too balanced, right? Um, because when we think about climate change, which I certainly view as a as an enormous challenge that we need to deal with, um, some people. Uh, per, might prefer that, you know, we say all oil and gas is bad. And the reality is when you actually look at 
scenarios that envision a low carbon future uh, that where we hit a two degree C global target or even below a two degree C global target, there is a role for oil and natural gas in that world, uh, particularly out over the next several decades. Once we get to 2060, 2070, 2080, that's when most of the models show, you know, oil and gas consumption needs to be at or near zero or needs to be offset by negative emissions, maybe coming from CCS or uh, CCS attached with natural gas power plants. And so um, I think there is a role in continued investment in oil and natural gas. It's important that we do it the right way uh, with smart regulations that minimize local risks as well as risks uh, of climate change. I'm glad we had a chance to talk today, and thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it.